Hello, welcome back to Rupture Radio. This is Dermot here, just popping in very quickly to intro a crossover episode we just did with the Week at Work podcast. Once I hop off, you'll hear our own Dave Murphy and Diana O'Dwyer discussing the top stories of the week with the Week at Work's Claire O'Connor and Dave Gibney. Thanks a million to the Week at Work for coming on, and I'll stick a link to the relevant topics in the episode description. Okay, so today I've been looking at the front page of the Sunday Times. Um, so their main story today is obviously because, you know, we've entered stage five of lockdown with COVID. So it's a COVID related story, as I think a lot of them are. But it's specifically around the schools um, and their attempts to keep the schools open. So there's a story by Stephen O'Brien, Mark Toig and John Mooney about the rolling out of uh like rapid testing in schools um now apparently nephews think that the antigen tests that they're planning to roll out are you know they're not reliable but it seems to be a sop to try and keep the schools open um post the midterm break because obviously the teachers have been putting um a lot of pressure on about how unsafe they feel in schools and you're seeing uh the spread of um covid between pupils um, but also the lack of the track and trace system, which, you know, we've seen it collapse more broadly across uh, the country in the last week. But that specifically in schools, there's major problems because it's being left, because there's no track and trace facility, it's being left to teachers and principals to try and step in to conduct the, the track and trace um, when a case arises in the school. Um, like they're obviously looking to go to the HSE for help, but they're trying to say, well, no, we'll have this. Um, rapid testing system put in place but there seems to be major doubts about it and I think it's like keeping the schools open has been a major political issue for the government for the last number of weeks they've seen it as one of their major goals Um, so they're obviously trying to you know make sure that they actually do stay open rather than having the schools closed which would be a major a major problem for them Um, but obviously it's also trying to force the like I think it's trying to turn public opinion against uh the teachers who are looking for safe working conditions to try and say the schools are fine, you can go back, um, and that there's there's no major issue there for you. So I think it's interesting that they they seem to be using like the less reliable testing system. It just seems to be a sop to try and uh, get the schools to remain open. Yeah, totally. And I think as well, like there's very justifiably not a lot of faith in the Department of Education. Um, I think of all the departments within the government, the Department of Education have been the most consistently disappointed from the start of this uh and we again people keep forgetting that this is a workers rights issue yeah there's valid reasons why we want kids in school but ultimately um people are there to work and it's yeah it's really disappointing diana do you want to give us your front page yeah i had a look at the sunday business post and again like it's all about covid basically they did a big opinion poll um that found that the headline is it's a silent majority in favor of the level five restrictions so like despite all of the kind of um, lobbying from big business and everything the poll found that there was 66 percent in favor um of a two to three week circuit breaker lockdown like which is a big majority especially because only 18 percent of people opposed to it you know 
Um, and they also found like a really high level of people complying with restrictions, 81% as well. So again, it kind of goes against the narrative that we've been getting in the media over the last while, which is that, you know, people are very tired of the restrictions and that they want the economy to reopen um, more. I mean, there's been a very cynical line really coming from Fine Gael and Braghar in particular, where suddenly they've discovered all of this concern for low paid workers and retail and hospitality who are going to face losing their jobs and trying to do this um, kind of line that they're really worried about them and that the public health people don't have to worry about losing their job in the morning because they're all comfortable civil servants you know and then Vrag are also having this kind of overnight Damascene conversion to being worried about mental health when they just have totally underfunded mental health like for decades like and they really don't care about it at all you know but it's just very cynical um, and just touching on what um, Des or what Dave was saying there um, about keeping the schools open like they also asked a question about that um, in the opinion poll as well and it's interesting because the whole story about the schools is kind of rumbling away there in the background but it isn't really being covered in a big way by the media I don't think even though it's a huge topic of controversy controversy among people as to whether the schools should be open or not. There's very divided opinion on it, I think, and that came out in the poll. Um, they found that like, it was 41% in favour of keeping schools open and 34% against, or 22 kind of in the middle, that they're neutral or they don't know. And I think that really reflects like people's experiences um, with how um, the HSE has reacted when there are cases of COVID in a school, that they will say that, you know, um, pupils that are not just in the same classroom, but actually in the same little pod um, are not close contacts and they keep redefining what a close contact is. The latest version I saw was like, you weren't going to be counted as a close contact unless you were a kid who had like lunch with a, with a mask off for 15 minutes with somebody who was a case, which is just way, way different to like how they define a close contact in any other situation. And that they basically set it up so the teachers are almost never defined as close contacts. So I think people are kind of realizing that on the ground, there's a Facebook page that is keeping records of, of cases in schools. And it's like a third of secondary schools or something have had cases at this stage. So people are hearing about it. And I think that's reflected um, in the opinion poll there today. Um, and then the other stories are about the failure of the testing and tracing um, system in particular. There's an interesting story going on there in the background, I think, with how the government is has been outsourcing responsibility for this pandemic um, from the start, um, especially in the area of tracing, where they have this agency CPL, which is one of the big temping recruitment agencies, hiring people um, on very insecure, precarious contracts, and they just don't have enough people, and the whole test tracing system collapsed there during the week. Yeah, and I think as well, the problem in the Norson homes, that's become you know, a massive issue goes back to the privatization can, can be traced back to the privatization as well and the fact that it's really hard to get temp staff with when the conditions are like this and also people are putting them, their lives at risk by going into some of those really high risk situations i think you really touched there on i mean we're talking about the exporting of responsibility from the start of the crisis i'd argue that the, the governments we've had have exported you know these kind of responsibilities for decades and that's how we ended up in this situation it also it's also really representative of the the individualization of structural problems what you were saying like that research you just talked about completely goes against the narratives that are being put out that places the blame on individuals and it's just it's trying to distract attention from you know the the structural uh you know, government policies that are actually driving some of this around 
precarious work and lack of sick pay and you know the stuff that we we tend, tend to harp on week on week in week out on this pod um dave do you want to tell us what from page you've been covering yeah i've got in front of me here the irish times weekend edition uh, again and um the front page is um there's two big stories on it and then a couple of small stories but it's the big stories here a sharp drop in close contact scene as a sign measures may be working um, and it, it's talking about how uh, the positive test for COVID has dropped from 8.9% of those who have been tested to 5.8%. And it's sort of hinting that, um, in my opinion, hinting that Varadkar was right to take the actions that he did to leave, you know, at three, uh, level three across the country, that sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, when you're reading between the lines of that stuff, it's portrayed as a positive thing that it's dropped to 5.8%. Most of that is probably down to Nefid writing the letter in the first instance and people going, oh shit, we better fucking take care of ourselves here because the government aren't going to do it. And that's um, going to be portrayed as a, as a win for the government, in my opinion, um, over the next couple of weeks, if, if those trends continue. Um, it's talking about uh, that the, uh, the, the, the other story, sorry, is that a watchdog opposes blanket ban on access to mother and baby home records. Um, and I know we're going to get into detail, I, I presume, about this uh, a, a little bit later on, so I won't get into too much detail now. Um, there's a, a lovely picture of three kids dressed up for Halloween as well on the front page. So they seem to be doing this on a weekly basis now on, on the weekend edition of the Irish Times of putting in a really positive story. And on that, just to say, um, if people haven't been watching on or seen it on Twitter, but Conan Burns, just on a positive note about how people are pulling together on some of this stuff. Conan Burns, a league, former League of Ireland player, I know him quite well. Um, he's from my hometown. I played football with him when I was younger. We set up this um, system with the uh, SSE, Electricity League players, current players and former players, where they're checking in on older fans that, that are isolated and, and left alone. And he's talking about... Uh, <laughs> one of the well a number of, of different players it gives a, a thread on the top it's a pinned tweet so you can go through all of the different players who rang different individuals so a, a child of somebody would ring and say my dad's a big Dundalk fan can you get somebody to call him from the team and, and somebody's calling and he's talking about how one of the players played on Thursday night in the Europa League and first thing in the morning he's ringing around some of these guys that are, are, are isolated and alone and I think that's that's what 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 one of the we, we get accused sometimes on this show of not giving any positive stories, but something like that is really encouraging to hear people pulling together because there is a, a story on page two of the Irish Times as well about how older people in particular are feeling very vulnerable and uh, friends of the elderly are checking in on, on people. But uh, just keep an eye out for your neighbours as well in these tough times because this lockdown is... You know, people have already experienced the first lockdown and felt we've gotten through it. And now this is another shock to their system. And uh, yeah, just keep an eye out for people. Yeah, just be sound. It's always a good, it's a good kind of model to live by. Um, so the paper that I had a look at was the Irish Examiner weekend edition. Um, and again, there is actually, funny that you mentioned that there's very centre, there's a picture of a transition year students dressed up as Where's Wally. Um, so obviously trying to inject a bit of positivity there too. The big stories are still an archival breach laws. Obviously, I think probably the biggest story of the week, the biggest story that we've had in a long time with the, the public reaction to it, which, you know, I think anybody who's been involved in the kind of activism around any of the the secrecy of the records or the, the church and state stuff will know. Um, I know I've been surprised that it, these kind of things don't get this kind of reaction more often. So it was really, really encouraging to see. I, I know... I don't actually say it. there's an adoption rights group. Uh, I think it's 
Aintus. I don't want to say Aintus because it's not like Aintu, but I don't know how to spell it. A-I-A-T-H-E-A-N-T-A-S on Twitter. But they set up a, a petition this week to uh, repeal the seal and it's the fastest grown petition, I think, in, in Irish history and it's over 120,000 already and it's incredible. But yeah, so sealing the archive will breach laws. This is basically just a follow-on from the stories that have been done during the week to say that the the sealing of these records does actually breach the GDPR laws but i think we're going to touch on that in much more detail um now in a couple of minutes another one of the stories that it covers is skilled hand sanitizer failed test two weeks ago so this is around the virapro hand sanitizer that was, it was in my kids school um, that i only found out on friday they were lucky enough to have a backup and they were still able to open but news broke on thursday night that this the the sanitizer that the, the contract that was given by the state for three million units of the sanitizer turns out that it wasn't even um up to scratch. We it was using methanol by all accounts. Um now if anybody's seen the actual the the ingredients list on the back of the bottle, it just says um alcohol. You know, I don't it does, it's not up to EU standards in terms of labeling, it's not up to EU standards in terms of um an ingredients list like a basic ingredients list and it also this company was set up in i think april um and i've had a quick look into the the directors list and stuff like that and they have about 18 companies to their name some of them set up really recently and they seem to be awarded a couple of contracts there's a lot of questions around how this how this contract was awarded the kind of due diligence that went into it. it's just another mess and a disaster yeah dave do you want to jump in there just on that one, I mean, I, I, I don't know much about it because it's obviously only broken this week, this news, but the, on page two again of the Irish Times, there's an article about this and it's really about the difference an M can make. Uh, so it's got methanol in it instead of ethanol. One, one letter of a difference. And I, I honestly think that somebody fucked up by, by, by getting the mix. Oh, ethanol. Oh, that, yeah, I got that. Hold on. I'll put that into it now. Um, and it's talking about how, how ethanol is obviously what they use to, to, as a sanitizer. But methanol can cause nausea, dermatitis, eye irritation, upper respiratory tract irritation, and headaches. So it's, it's not a funny issue, but it's like, seriously, lads, what the fuck are you doing? Like? Yeah. And put it into school. Like we're got, They didn't only put it into schools. They put it into, you know, GP's office, dentist's office. Like, it went in, you know, the, the level of procurement, the I, I just can't wrap my head around. I mean, you can kind of go back to the... the, the the leave and search mess with the um the company that was chosen for that as well that ended up being one person with a dodgy office in Canada or something like that um and you know in one of the most important times in our history where you know people are kind of under enough pressure people like those leave and search students had been through enough we're already in a, in a massive moment of public health you think people would be like better just make sure that we're not making this any worse um around governance as well it just, it just raises huge questions i don't think of, i don't think we've, we've seen the level of interest in this maybe because of the bigger stories of the week i think this is going to roll on i think this is going to be massive i hope it is because massive questions have to go into how a company that was set up mid-april got this contract you know huge amounts of money and clearly they had no business running this i, I don't you know I'd say they just said, by the looks of when you look at the company and the directors of the company, they have a huge amount of companies. They seem to source goods. So they just went and got this somewhere else. So yeah, I mean, massive questions there as well. Another story in the front of the examiner is test on gun for link to gear and mortar. So I don't know if anybody saw the, the Spanish police posted a video of them arresting John Gilligan, which was like the scene out of the wire. Like it was just mad watching them break down the door and, um, you know take him in and going through everything like it was you, you definitely can't imagine the guard doing it but they found a gun under the floorboards and they're talking about 
like they think that it might actually be the it could be the gun that um killed Veronica Guerin, which is just mad to think you know so many levels it's mad to think that if it was that he would be carrying it with him and have it under his floorboards in Spain it just seems a little bit far-fetched but the interesting thing there on that sorry the interesting thing on that one is that the videos are released I don't know if any of us have, have seen the videos of the police digging up the gun it's not under, really under floorboards it's under like gravel out his back garden where um, they just skimmed away the top layer of it and all of a sudden there's a there's a gun um, and it was obviously something we would never see the Gardaí do videoing themselves going in on a raid um, and I'm sure you guys, Dave and Deanna, have experiences of raids well, in the party, not necessarily yourselves, but uh, going in and uh, and showing that level of detail of what they were doing in there. And that has all been released. So you, people can see it. It's all up online if, if they wanted to watch this. But the, the fact that they're saying that this could potentially be the gun of the killed Veronica Guerin, I mean, I, I, I'd say it's high. I think people might be getting their expectations a little bit up there because there's a lot of these guns around and he didn't do the hit himself. He got somebody else, is the accusation, allegedly. I have to be careful here, don't I? Um, so I, I just, I wouldn't be getting my hopes up that this is going to, you know, re resolve the, the, the Veronica Guerin murder. Yeah, and so then the next story is Boeing refuses to release documents on Max crash. So an Irish UN worker, um, Mick Ryan, his family have said that he was killed in an air crash in 2019. And they've said that Boeing won't release the records um, for an investigation. Um, I, it's really sad for the family, but what jumped out to me was that it just seems to really tie in. Like we were talking about Stardust last week with the mother and baby home this week. It's just this constant stream of stories at the minute. We talked obviously about Glenan Gang a couple of weeks ago um, of the idea of truth and justice and who gets access to truth and justice and who stands in the way of truth and justice. And, you know, too often private interests and profit and capital manage to, you know, prevent truth, justice and reconciliation happening. And I just thought that that would, you know, really tied in with a lot of the stories we've been talking about. A couple of little small ones down the bottom as well. Stampede of protesters is the one that jumped out to me most. So, um, and this is basically about the far right uh, protest that happened over the weekend. And it's really good to see uh, the far right mentioned. So it actually says, Gardaí were confronted with the prospect of a very frightening stampede by far right protesters on Grafton Street when they moved in to arrest 11 of them on Thursday. Um, it's just really good to see the name, the far right. You know, uh, too many journalists aren't kind of getting off the pot on this stuff and they're trying to, some are saying they don't want to give it oxygen. Some are saying some are some are just both sides. And we've had this, you know, with Mick Clifford last week, um, saying that you know, acting as if the people that stand up against racism and homophobia and misogyny, um, are just as bad as the fascists. But uh, yeah, so I just thought it was really, really interesting to see that. So yeah, that's the that's the Irish Examiner. Um, Dave, I might go back to you, Dave Morphy. <laughs> I might go back to you on kind of one of the stories that caught your attention most inside the papers or even one of the one of your stories in the front page okay yeah so just like it's kind of linked to um what you were saying there about the the demonstrations in dublin by the far right um so there's there's a couple of articles so i think like diana mentioned the opinion poll where like you know like most ordinary people are in favor of of these measures and then you have like you kind of have three different conversations going on you have a conversation between the government and effort you have like ordinary people in the communities talking to each other and then you have like a conversation in the media between um you know like big business and and presenters and like they're the three types of uh conversations that are going on uh, and then you also have this like these far right mobilizations but i think like uh justine mccarthy mccarthy has a good piece in the sunday times um in her opinion piece this week so she's she starts off by listing people who've you know been targeted and abused. So people remember the family from the little lad. Um, do you remember there was like a a, a 
an Irish family um, and they were in the little ad, I think it was like mixed race family and then like they were just like piled on um, by uh, O'Doherty and our gang. Then there's the mother in Longford. I don't know if you saw this during the week. Do you remember O'Doherty put up a picture of a class of kids um, and then this mother uh, opposed her um, and like it showed like just like what's happened to her like you know like they've um, she spoke about like she's had stuff thrown at her house she's had uh, her dead child's uh, grave was desecrated by them like really uh, sinister stuff so like Justine McCarthy's sort of like making the point that like there's this argument um, where people are saying oh just ignore them you know uh, just you know just leave them in the corner they're you know have pity on them because they're like they're stupid you know like this line of argument and she's kind of making the point well yeah for every time that you say ignore them there's actually like a victim who's getting abused by them like and the idea that you just stand back and say oh well look nobody's listening to them you know um and i think that's really good because um there is this like line that oh if you just ignore them they'll go away but like they're actually still organizing and like there are people still getting attacked you know i thought uh izzy uh i heard her on um a a different podcast i think it was the tortoise shack podcast and she said that like when conservative views and conservative forces uh start to mobilize that like it's uh the lgbt community who are like the canaries in the coal mine because they get attacked forced um and i think like you're starting to see that like you know um so like the idea that like you mobile like i think justin mccartney and her article is kind of arguing for like hit these people with the fines etc that have been introduced but i think like like mobilizing against them um i think is one of the uh the key things she also points out to the you know the the bork family who intervened in a coroner's case uh during the week um they're a family from mayo i think they're like a like right-wing catholic extremist type family and there was a syrian family whose daughter uh sally had died she had a congenital heart condition and then the, the coroner was looking into it and they turned up at it and wouldn't leave the coroner's court even though it was against public health restrictions and the thing had to be postponed like you know and then th- they were outside court um making you know like looking for publicity off it like um but but i think like she points out this idea that like uh that uh justine mccarthy is like oh well the argument that you pity these people um rather than that like you should fear them because they are a threat and you can ignore them but somebody else is going to feel feel the effects of you ignoring them i think that's like a a, a key issue for people at the minute well you know like uh, they're relatively small numbers at the like the last couple of protests were relatively small that thing on uh grafton street and o'connell street where you know a couple of hundred but still like it's a, it's it's a warning there you know that they are trying to mobilize in this weird situation that we're in with covid and and the lockdown yeah and i think it comes back to privilege as well like when you don't recognize that just because it doesn't affect you doesn't mean it's, it doesn't exist. Um, I think that drives a lot of people thinking this isn't a big deal. Um, Diana, what, any, any stories really jump out to you this week? Um, I suppose it's just the the big focus on COVID the whole time. Um, and I think there's a, a bit more coverage during the week of the guards kind of cracking down on the far right protesters on the day of the um, that the, the lockdown and was coming into effect. Um, and I kind of go into a little bit in an article that I wrote um, there uh, last week um, on the idea of having a zero COVID um, strategy, but with socialist policies, because um, it's really important to be able to support people to follow public health advice 
um, you know, in areas like everyone having access to full um, sick pay from their employer. And, and it's also important for cutting across the far right as well. Like, I think the far right have really capitalized on this pandemic um, because they're the only ones who are still going to go out and have like protests and not care about wearing masks or social distancing. Whereas the left do actually care about people and people's health. So they haven't been organizing mass protests and the, the far right have kind of stepped into that void, you know, and, and really exploiting it. Um, but I think one thing they've really been able to exploit is the inconsistencies in the public health advice. Like people aren't stupid. They can see, right, that, you know, how come I'm not allowed to have any visitors to my house, but my boss can still force me to go into work unnecessarily in like a cramped, crowded workplace or office doing unnecessary work, um, you know, in somewhere that isn't in line with public health advice. But yet I can't, you know, have my family over to visit me in my garden, you know. Um, and I think there was a point there about a week ago when they brought in the ban on household visits, but they still hadn't um, moved to stricter lockdown measures overall when that just became really glaring for people that basically they're basing the public health advice from the government as opposed to from NEFIT, um, kind of along the lines of like, if somebody can make money out of it, make a profit out of it, you can do it. So, you know, you can meet somebody outside a restaurant or whatever, um, but you can't have somebody in your own back garden because no one will make money out of that. And that was something that really um, stood out to people. Um, and I think the far right, like um, the way that they've affected this whole situation in Ireland is like they have focused everything on masks to wear masks or not to wear masks as if it's some kind of symbol of like personal freedom and the same stuff from Trump um, in the the US, although he's had to start wearing masks now after after getting COVID finally, you know. Um, but like I think what they're doing is actually kind of in a way, in a weird kind of way, it's playing into the way the government is trying to outsource responsibility for all of this, like onto individuals. So it's up to you to wear a mask. And of course you should wear a mask, but it would be much better if the government was doing everything possible to protect people from the pandemic, if they were stopping employers from dragging people into work, on if they were having more public transport so people weren't crowded on buses and trains and stuff, um, you know, if they had a decent health service, but instead it's all just being put on you, you know, um, that it's up to you to do everything. And like, it was really mad, like when they decided not to follow the advice initially about the lockdown, um, all the politicians were out on Twitter tweeting, it's all about individual responsibility now. Like I think Stephen Donnelly even had tweets like that, like it's over to you, you know, and why is it over to you? Because you haven't acted, you know? Um, and then the far right comes in and, you know, amplifies that narrative that it's personal responsibility rather than state responsibility. And that's something like we should be exposing them for, I think, um, on the left as well. You know? Yeah, massively. Um, it's, it's the worst in neoliberalism and they're showing themselves so clearly. Uh, it's you think it must be a gift but it's um i think what you're saying about the far right it, it's the exact same with the likes of housing as well we, we i've had uh, you know they call like people who call themselves housing activists run for election for far right parties in my own constituency someone who said that they protected homeowners they really protected land landlords but um the what they're actually doing is providing cover by blaming migrants particularly around housing and saying you know like it's it's somebody coming in from another country that's taking the house that should be yours all they're doing is giving cover for the government for not providing an adequate public housing system like i don't think the far right get called out for that stuff enough that actually 
you're protecting the government like you're actually taking responsibility away from the government and placing it on the most vulnerable people um in the country by these you know these dog whistles that they put out uh and yeah i don't agree with you. i think that's just happening all over again with covid can i ask you just in relation to the article you did this week the zero covid when Michael martin came out and gave a speech about moving to level five um he totally dismissed the the zero covid as if it was you know as if there weren't some really you know well qualified professionals talking about this that know what they're talking about and he i think he um what he put out was kind of misinformation because he acted like zero COVID is about eradicating COVID instead of, you know, getting it down to a certain level and implementing just stronger measures around how we control it. Do you, do you think that his kind of misinformation is, is what people believe is zero COVID or do you think that people have a better understanding? I don't know. I'd say like they are being relatively successful in just making people think zero COVID is like literally zero COVID you know because <laughs> that's always what they say and it's really disingenuous because like they know well that it doesn't mean that you know but they just go oh sure that's impossible that's totally unrealistic or the other thing that um neil martin said during the week when paul murphy was asking him about it in the dole was he was like oh you just want to seal the border you know so they've got all different ways of misrepresenting what it is you know and he was like i wouldn't have thought someone on the left would want to do that you know like they're really they just distort it because they don't want to actually engage in a debate on the merits of it because their own policy is you know so crazy it's just basically like we're going to yo-yo in and out of lockdowns until hopefully you get a vaccine and sure you know we mightn't have an effective vaccine for years you know um so i don't think they want to go there in terms of admitting that there are other things that they could try you know and then hmm? oh sorry <laughs> um yeah and like i think the classic way like that Michael martin kind of set it up as well in his speech was like he's like on the one hand you have like you know the far right with their herd immunity and then the other hand you have the far left with their zero COVID. you know the way they try and make a kind of equivalence between the two i mean that's not to say that a lot of the scientists pushing zero COVID like they're not socialists or anything but i think like um, or a version of it would be a lot more effective because there's a lot more emphasis on supporting people to be able to comply and not just, you know, throwing people out um, in the cold, basically being like, okay, here's these heavy restrictions, but we're not going to, you know, do anything to support you in complying with it, like the sick pay and uh, the um, pandemic unemployment payment and the ban on evictions and rent write-offs and all the things that could be done to support people. Yeah, and I think, yeah, um we actually recorded we have a, an upcoming podcast um with conor mccabe on how to from a left perspective analyze a budget in terms of the politics and i think after that the thing that really stuck with me is that it's very clear that they have absolutely no intention on a long-term basis of moving towards those supports so it's you can see and you can see that in the in the statements they make and the lack of action they're taking and they have absolutely no intention of doing those things dave do you want to know this I want in on loads of this. Um, there's there's, <laughs> there's a really good uh, uh, piece. There's so many things I want to address on, on what Diana just mentioned there. And I read the article and, and a lot of it is related to that. But before I come to the article stuff, I mean, on page four of the Irish Times, the extremist groups showing propensity for violence, says Harris. Um, and then we goes back to what you were saying earlier on about this, this playing the left and the right. They're both the same type of thing. Now, there hasn't been any violence from from left groups uh, it's only been from far right groups but yet you have to read this article right to the very last paragraph to get the first first time they mention the word far right and um, they don't mention it throughout it's extremist groups and that's very worrying that they're trying to because 
from a civil liberties perspective, like this is all a threat to our right to protest. And when you are putting that sort of language in it, that it's, they're all the same, it means that people who are out there protesting against their treatment in the likes of Debenhams are put into the same category as people who are protesting against wearing masks. Um, so anyway, there's, there's that that's really worrying. But what's really funny, and I, I don't mean, well, I do mean funny, Jesus Christ. Here, here, listen to the headline of this one in the Sunday Business Post. Boss of Open Orphan offers to be infected with COVID-19 for early trial of vaccine. And I'm reading that and going, well, fair play to him. He's putting his money where his mouth is, this chief executive of a vaccine company saying, look, I'll, I'll get infected first. So then you read the, the sixth paragraph. I wouldn't ask anyone to do anything I wouldn't do myself. However, the protocol will be that the initial people involved are those with minimal risk of danger from the, the infection. And that seems to be 18 to 30 year olds. That will be the initial group being targeted. So basically he's saying, I'll get tested, but after we find out that it's safe. <laughs> after everybody else is being tested. So you, could, you couldn't make it up. But just in terms of the article that you'd written, Diana, um, about zero, zero COVID Ireland with socialist policies, which is on the RISE website, um, it, it opens up sort of with the, the dealing with the first wave. And it's funny that the yesterday Ireland played Italy in the rugby, which you know you forget because it seems like a whole lifetime ago, that back in March when COVID was rampant in Italy and killing thousands of people, that they allowed the fans of the, even though the Italy game was cancelled, they allowed all of the fans to fly in. And that, that's what caused one of the major causes of our first wave. And yet, you know, when you talk about dealing with the first wave or the issues around the first wave, people are still flying in because we only have advisory. We don't have any sort of follow up or checks on these on people who are traveling in from greenest countries or from anywhere else. And no follow up in terms of phone calls to them. Um, and they don't have to self-isolate. There's people who are tweeting saying, I just arrived back from my holiday in Magaluf yesterday and I'm down on, on Grafton Street doing my shopping because the, the lockdown is coming in. You're gonna, like, they still haven't grasped that that was one of the major problems that we had at the start. The sick pay stuff obviously work for a trade union. We're, we're seeing this stuff. And in the budget they reduced, you used to not get your sick pay for six days. They've reduced it down to three days, which is obviously welcome. But that's only going back to where we were in 2010, 11, 12, 13, when the Labour Party changed it to the six days, which is still not good enough because our members in particular and lots of other workers, 117,000 people who are at work are living in poverty, can't afford to take those first three days off unpaid with no supports whatsoever. So they're still having to go to work with viruses and with illnesses in pharmacies. For instance, we said it in a couple of shows ago about the Lloyd's pharmacy workers having to go to work with bronchitis, with pneumonia, with swine flu, and potentially passing it on to people who suffer with other ailments, diseases, cancer, whatever. Um, so there's that. And then another element of the article is about the outsourcing of health. And, um, and that, that brings me to another article that's in the Irish Times today about the breaches uh, breaches shock relatives of care home victims and it's talking about um Hickwa's investigation into the uh Delgan house in Dundalk where which was one of 13 care facilities inspected and they were failing to comply with standards the privately owned um nursing home again outsourcing state outsourcing these these um responsibilities but it found that they have comply failed to comply with seven re regulations, including on risk management, infection control, healthcare, staffing, and training and staff development. These privatized nursing homes, you know, people say well, we can't trust the public sector. You can't trust the private sector to do this sort of work. This is why things are, are spreading as well. And then again on page two, in terms of the outsourcing, one of the country's main labs is unable to process tests 
due to staff shortages. So right in the middle of a second wave, we have UCD's lab testing facilities out of action because they don't have enough staff to do it. So they ha now have to outsource that to the private sector again. So um, another element is the re rushing to reopen the economy. I just, the point I'm trying to make here is we haven't learned any lessons from the first wave. We're still going around doing exactly the same thing, same lack of restrictions in certain places, the, hate, the, the confusion around the messaging, all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's so frustrating to think back to where we were and to think, Jesus, maybe we'll learn a lesson from this. And then we haven't. It's very clear we haven't. I mean, everything you just said there speaks, you know, directly into one of the other big stories of the week. And that's... Um, the announcement of uh, the cervical check tribunal by Stephen Donnelly that he said is going to be um, appointed on the 27th of October. So uh, there was real anger from uh, Vicky Phelan and the 221 Plus group on the back of this. I mean, you're talking there about outsourcing, about lack of responsibility, about um, lack of duty of care to people. And that's, we, if, if we haven't learned anything from the cervical check scandal, it, it's just shown again this week and how Stephen Donnelly has treated this. He had actually met, the, Steve, or Vicky did a big thread on Twitter talking about you know the process so far that they six weeks ago, they met with Stephen Donnelly, they gave him all their concerns, they gave him exactly what they felt like they needed from this. And basically none of it was uh, listened to. She has got, like she basically called it not fit for purpose on a slap in the face. I know they've had another meeting with him since, but um, there was real anger on how it was dealt with. They also found out on, they found out the day it was announced. They got a letter the day it was announced. Some of them actually found out from the online announcement from Stephen Donnelly. And it's just this constant lack of respect for people who have already been failed by the state. Um, and it's, yeah, again, I, I I just feel like week after week, we're seeing these same stories pop up all the time about how outsourcing um, to private for-profit companies lets people down. Sometimes people literally leave their lose their lives on the back of it if not their lives people are losing serious quality of life they're losing you know basic decency and um every time it happens and every time we have a scandal there's an apology but we don't actually see any change and it's really frustrating and again we've talked about a lot of times how covid has you know shown a it's shone a light on the existing inequalities that were already there and there was a lot of talk at the start about how this was an opportunity to change and you know to 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 change how we organize the world and how we organize society but you know, we really haven't seen much of it. Um, move on to the the mother and baby homes. Daniel McConnell actually had a bit had an article in the Examiner, and it was basically the he spoke about the cervical check scandal and the mother and baby homes debacle. And to me, that that is you know mentioned earlier on it's the biggest story of the week. We had pretty much everybody in opposition, and even some people that have been voting with the government so far, stand up in the doll and argue against the bill. The bill, which. The government are saying doesn't seal the records, but the consequences of it are that records will be sealed. Uh, they, what the government have said is that the the commission is coming up to its end at the end of the month, that as a result of that, the records are going to be destroyed. He hasn't showed any evidence as to why that would happen. Um, and the defence that they're given is that this bill was to protect the survivor testimonies. They'll then be passed over to Tussler, who a lot of survivors have also argued aren't fit for purpose in looking after this because they have really questionable practices and how they handle people's private data. I have family members that have been um, adopted and have had negative experiences as well in trying to either access their parents or their their children and it's just 
trust that have serious issues around this stuff. So the fact that they were chosen and uh, the minister stood up in the doll and actually defended that choice in the face of what survivors were saying was just, it was just a constant disrespect to survivors. Uh, there was the, the issue as well, and I think Catherine Connolly particularly really articulated this well, was how this was done. I mean, everybody did. There were some brilliant speeches. I'd recommend anybody go look at them. A lot of them are on Twitter or on YouTube. But um, how this was rammed through the Shannon and it was rammed through the doll. The amendments weren't taken. He basically really rudely answered Holly Cairns when she asked, was he going to take amendments with a simple no, we barely looked in her direction. Um, there was just a complete disrespect for the democratic process as far as I'm concerned. There were ways to make this really bad piece of legislation a little bit better. Um, it still wouldn't have been enough because ultimately the 30 year sale needs to be addressed. The, you know, there's, there's, I feel like there's a huge amount of gaslighting happening now at the minute. We have some influencers getting involved now who aren't disclosing their political connections and are putting, you know, this kind of government slant that this was actually to protect survivors, which, as Catherine Connolly said, is extremely patriarchal. It's patronising. It's just so dismissive to the people. But like victims and survivors and advocates, you know, the likes of Mabel Rourke, the likes of Catherine O'Donnell, who have been working with survivors since, you know, 2009 at the very least with Justice for Magdalene's, um, they have no political skin in the game. You know, there's no reason for them to, uh, they're not trying to defend themselves. They're not trying to get themselves elected. Like there's just no political reason for them to, to lie about this stuff. They're best, they have survivors' interests at heart and they've shown that by doing the work over the past 11 years. So this is something I'm really angry about. It's it, Again, I think it's just a continuation of, a lot of these people are people that have been abused and hurt and lied to and just treated like with absolutely no dignity from by the state for decades and this is just another example of that um, and the fact that the, the public reaction has been so extreme I think has probably shocked the government they've kind of left the minister out there on his own they left him out there for a couple of days uh, you know a couple of Green Party members came out and defended it but that wasn't I don't think that, was, that nobody was buying it they've had huge the Greens have had huge resignations so they're they're queer the queer Greens uh, chair resigned the the young Greens chair resigned and I know they've had at least a councillor resign and they've said that senior reps are considering their positions so I think this is got this isn't going to be something that goes away someone like Roderick, Roderick O'Gorman who you know considers himself a progressive politician and has kind of platformed himself on progressive issues um he maybe he believes that he you know he can impact some change within the department and he can you know unseal those records but I think that's naive at best and ultimately he doesn't get to decide he doesn't make get to make the decision that what he did this week was okay just to you know just to get there but I've rambled about I've rambled about this for long enough. Uh, who would like who would like to comment on that? Yeah, like I think the reaction to this, like um, I think like most weeks in the doll, like legislation goes through and it's not really you know like a lot of it's just like updating existing legislation or and then you have like it's not really um like making a fundamental change to the law and then you have like your set pieces like your leaders questions, but I think like it's only every so often like something comes along which really like roils up the whole nation like you know and i think like this is like one of those issues because i think like there's the absolute scandal about how like women were treated in mother and baby homes then there's like over the last number of years there's been this step by like the establishment and the state to say oh we're sorry about it like you know and to hold our hands up like people remember remember end kenny's speech in the doll where he had like a tear in his eye like and there was this like idea that like you know, uh, stuff happened, we're sorry, we'll make sure it never happens again type thing. That That's kind of like their argument, we'll improve services for women. Um, But, like, 
then you have this coming on straight away. Like, you know, like this week you have like, well, like their words ringing hollow because like this is how they're treating um, the women now. Like they're just re-victimizing them. And I think like for it to happen in the same week with the cervical check, you know what I mean? It just shows like how the state like just like undermines women in, in di- different many ways, like I like through loads of different uh, parts of the state. And I think like the reaction, like 100,000 signatures on online within i think 24 or 48 hours like i think like it's it's rare you get that type of reaction like in in ireland like usually things bubble for a while and they come to a head but this is like being absolutely immediate like i think like if you didn't have covid restrictions in now you'd see like a big massive demo on the on the on the streets like you know in support of them because i think that's that's the whole sentiment of um support behind like opposition to what happened to these women but also like solidarity and support like yeah i think like the big suspicion here is basically what the state is trying to do again is try and stole people from getting access to their records and try and just slow everything down it's kind of like the same thing that they did with the magdalens and then they just basically wait for people to get older people to die and then hopefully that there'd be less of a compensation bill for the state at the end of the day because there's a whole like can of worms behind all of this stuff we know there was vaccine trials on children illegal adoptions slave labor conditions and like the state just wants to you know minimize the amount of light that's shown upon it still um, but I also think there's just kind of just a tone deafness to this whole stuff as well. I mean, it's a bit like the general problem with the Green Party is like they're only interested in this very narrow version of environmentalism that relates around, you know, um, people having nice personal environments and treating kind of treating climate change as like a question, again, of personal responsibility, you know, like that I'll cycle around the place and I'll reduce my consumption and I'll recycle, you know, but capitalism itself is fine. And similarly, that wider social justice issues are just don't seem to be something that they take all that much of an interest in. Like Roderick O'Gorman just seemed totally clueless about this. Um, And I think there's also been a sense in terms of the response to the pandemic as well, that like, again, like issues that really affect women are not being given much attention or just kind of not being thought about like the way they never thought of extending maternity leave you know they're like um for for women and then they had to come back in and make it so that um um women who are on maternity benefit were included in the different schemes and stuff like that you know um and then there was also the issue around visiting um, maternity hospitals like for ages that nobody was allowed to have anyone visit them in, in maternity hospitals. It's just like these really important issues um, that affect women like emotionally and, you know, and psychologically and just in terms of living their lives just are not like on the agenda at all, it seems a lot of the time. And particularly when it's working class women who are affected. I mean, that's the whole story here with the mother and baby homes is it's um, working class um, women who got pregnant who were forced into these institutions and just treated like absolute dirt by the state you know and it's the same old attitude again really coming out in in terms of um, how they're so casual about oh we're going to seal the records and then saying things like oh you can go and get the records off the record holders i heard some of the government spokesperson saying that that you know you can't easily access them centrally from the commission because they're giving them to Tuesday or whatever, but sure you can get them back off the nuns. Like, hello, like, do they not know what the whole problem has been from the beginning? Like, no. it's crazy. The nuns were inventing fires that burned down whole loads of records and stuff, you know? 
and how re-traumatizing that is like the complete lack of understanding of how trauma works and how hard it is for people even to just decide to go and request records like how traumatizing it even is to just you know engage in in the past when the past is so traumatizing one of the things you've just actually mentioned there though that i feel like has has flown under the radar everything that Roderick O'Gorman has said about well i'm going to make sure that you know survivors do have access to their records i'm going to figure out a way that that happens in a in a you know in a better way that they, those records won't be sealed um and what what's been completely ignored and also the fact that the likes of simon mcgarr has been brilliant in highlighting that GDPR applies and GDPR overrides the 2014 bill anyway, so, 2004 bill anyway. So it's not going to, you know, the, the case is going to be taken on this, hopefully, and it will be quashed. But even if survivors' records are made available to individual survivors, what's really being hidden here is the institutional aspect of this and the government involvement. So, like Mabel Work has talked a lot about the records we need to see that need to be in an archive are the anonymized you know the people who want to be anonymized anonymized but the anonymized records between departments so between the state and the institutions those records aren't going to be made available to survivors you know only records that actually relate to individuals will be made available so even if they do do that and obviously rightly so a lot of the the focus is on survivors because you know people do this happen to other people that matter but we also need to learn about just how deep this stuff ran and how man, how it was allowed to happen and how you know society you know played a part in it and how we continue to make those same mistakes because we haven't learned from it you know we're doing you know we're doing the exact same thing when it comes to uh, direct provision and when it comes to homeless hubs like the institutionalization of particularly like you said working class women and children um and anybody in marginal groups like it's we, it's slightly different. So the majority of people look at it and they don't see that it's actually just the same behaviors and the same uh, discrimination and marginalization happening. Um, and because we haven't, we don't understand our past enough to have learned from it. And I think that's a really important thing that we need access to the to the wider records. Like we need to know what the state did, not 30 years from now. Dave, do you want to know this? Yeah, just, just quickly. I mean, a lot of it is about trust. Um, and I think what's happened in the last 10 years in particular, maybe 15 is that people have sort of seen through a lot of the state's facade and what what, what it stands for and what it doesn't stand for. Um, but the most important part of all of this is that we should be listening. Everybody should be listening to the victims and what they're calling for. This isn't about what they've given you or any of us wants. And um, what do the victims want? And the victims wanted this not to happen. And it has happened. And again, as you say, uh, the traumatization, it, it's effectively telling people, you know, you can go and get your details from the nuns the very people who abused you in the first place. Uh, it's telling people to go back to um, the, the people who, who, who've stolen their children. Uh, look, it's, it's so upsetting for so many people because there is probably very few families in Ireland that haven't been affected by the mother and baby home stuff or are connected through friends or whatever. But the Uplift petition, as somebody who's on the board of Uplift when it was set up um, and somebody who works in communications and sets up petitions a lot of the time, this is unprecedented. This is massive. Even with the Right to Water campaign, which was enormous, the most we got after about a year of pushing that petition was 70,000 people. This is 48 hours and it's 128,000 people. Like it's almost double that. So it just shows you. And I don't think, I think a lot of this comes down to arrogance and the, um, the questions people are starting to ask about the permanent government. And Roderick Gorman sitting there in the, well, in the, in the convention center, um, 
the doll or I don't know what way you'd phrase it now, but him sitting there and saying, I will be taking no amendments is, and the arrogance of that. And he is doing the bidding of the private or not the private, the permanent government. That, that's what's really pissing people off is that it shows you our democratic system for what it is. It's not there to represent people. It's not there to take amendments that are genuinely constructive. It's there to do the bidding of a handful of civil servants who want to lock these files away. And when you say, and when I mentioned trust, when you say about, you know, um, passing the files on to Tusla, page eight of today's Irish Times, some 161 unaddressed alleged child abuse reports found. I'll, I'll, I'll just read the opening paragraph because that's probably all you need to hear. Some 161 reports of alleged child abuse were left unaddressed in the County Kerry area by Tusla, including a number of cases where children were at potential risk. It goes on and talks about a previous Irish Times report. Uh, previously, Irish Times reported Tusla had failed to uh, refer 365 cases of suspected abuse to Garda in the County Kerry area which included the 161 unaddressed files. These are the people they're saying we're going to pass the files to and you have to trust them. What does that say to the victims and the survivors in this case as, as, as all the other ones? But when it, one of the more frustrating things for me being you know, involved in the Debenhams dispute is how we've been told for months now that we can't rush legislation. You can't get across the line very, very quickly. We have to take time. We have to consider this stuff uh, about what happened to the Debenhams workers, which, by the way, is what happened to the Cleary's workers, which, by the way, is what happened to the Paris Bakery workers and Lasenza workers and HMV workers and we game workers. And it goes on and on and on. Is that we, have, we can't rush legislation, right? There are 200 days, those Debenhams workers, on picket lines tomorrow. 200 full days in hail, rain, you know, all sorts of weather. I know we've covered it on this show multiple times, but 200 days where the government still hasn't instigated a report or a look at what has happened and how we can, another report, I should say, because they do have the Duffy Cattle report, which gave them all the recommendations, which would not only resolve this for future workers, but also resolve the dispute that's ongoing now. And all we're getting from the government is tea and sympathy. We sympathize with you, it's been through a hard time, but they are refusing to legislate to protect workers from this in the future. And as we know, as we enter this lockdown and all the talk from Ver Veradker, from Michal Martin, and all of the rest of them is, we wanna protect the mental health of, of people. We wanna protect workers. We wanna protect livelihoods. And yet when they get the opportunity to legislate, to protect those people in the event that, in, in a, an increasingly likely event that they lose their jobs, they're refusing to act on it. So they can rush legislation when it suits them, when it's a cover-up, when they want to hide files. But they can't rush le legislation when it's to protect livelihoods, protect mental health and protect workers who are on picket lines for 200 days tomorrow. I just want to touch on one quick story before I go to Dave on a housing one. And that's, you know, we're talking a lot about justice here and truth and secrecy and the state cover-ups. Um, we, we did talk about the status last week, but since then, one of the most vocal and most committed campaigners for justice in the Stardust was Eugene Kelly. Um, and Eugene died this week suddenly and I just wanted to note that because Eugene is an incredible campaigner I everything I've been at you know around the Stardust um Eugene has been there front and center he's always with Antoinette he always has a picture of his rubber his brother Robert with him and uh, it was just devastating and it was we've lost quite a few people um since the announcement of the inquest we've lost quite a few people uh you know that have been really involved in the Stardust campaign Chris Keegan was obviously a massive one um and Eugene this week and it's just I know a lot of people were so devastated about it because it's it, it, he was so close to achieving justice and achieving truth and just I wanted him to be able to stand in the in Dublin Castle and hear the words that he you know 
has fought so long to hear about who was at fault with this and who um and that it wasn't the people involved and i just yeah so i just wanted to note that um i'm gonna go to dave dave morphy uh you have which is another one of the biggest failings of the government this week as well and the fact that it actually happened the same night as the, the mother and baby homes vote was just a really depressing night for anybody interested in good politics yeah so there's like as i was saying there a few minutes ago like there's like weeks where nothing happens in the doll and then there's like weeks where like you know <laughs> uh loads of really really important legislation comes through um paraphrase uh len um but um I, there was there's there's two stories linked to it in um the sunday times today so there's one story about um like there, there are two stories around housing there's one of them that i just mentioned in in passing um it's about uh johnny ron and his company accusing uh dublin city council of having a, a personal ing- a deep and personal ingrained bias and malice against them because he of his company obviously have this view for the docklands that's going to be high density, high rise, um, and that he's going to profit off it. So, uh, they're tr- they've been writing to the minister saying you have to sort out Dublin City Council. They have an agenda against us, and they have all these like quotes saying that like a member of Dublin City Council said that Johnny Rowland's plan for the docklands is just to like increase his personal profits, which is like exactly true. Like you know, um. But then the, the the other story is about um it's linked to what came up in the doll this week. So like there would have been some housing legislation in the doll this week. There was um the extension of the evictions ban, um with level five coming back in, which is like totally inadequate. It'll end in a few weeks, um and then in January like you, historically you see a lull in like evictions coming up to Christmas, and then in January there's a big spike. Um, but the, the other piece of legislation I think it was um, brought forward by Sinn Féin around banning co-living these um, like high density um, where you have like a room in a building with like ho- tiny little room hundreds of people and you share like a kitchen and a living space um, now leaving aside that during the pandemic like we're seeing like what that would actually cause like it'd be, it'd be like back to the uh, to the tenements but so so this bill was uh, defeated and they're they're saying they're going to plow ahead with the idea. But this uh, Stephen O'Brien in the Sunday Times um has a has um a, a story here about a report that's been given to the minister. So Dara O'Brien when he was in opposition, he was totally opposed to the co living idea. Um now he's in government, he's obviously uh he's obviously defending it. Um so what the paper from like it's it, I think it's from like the the department are saying is that like there's different options here, but like you'd sort of like be be cutting off your nose to spite your face now if you if you banned co living like you know um so like the, the what they're suggesting is that like keep these co living proposals apparently there's been uh, fourteen applications for these type of developments in the four like Dublin council areas and um, but apparently during the week on Bar Planalis said I think Owen O'Brien said that on Bar Planalis said there's actually thirty six of them so these are going to be coming around. Uh, everywhere and like people are going to be packed in to a tiny room i think like one of the proposals is is that like what they're what's currently uh going before planning going for planning permission that the personal rooms the person will be paying 13 or 1400 a month for um with no kitchen with no living space just like a bed in a tiny room will be going like for 13 or 1400 so so what they what they're saying is like no defend in principle the idea of co-living and make like some little small tweaks like make the room slightly bigger have a like a 
a small kitchenette like you know like when you're on holidays you have a small kitchenette where you might have uh, like room for a kettle and you know a, a mini fridge or something like make, make space for them in the tiny rooms um but defend the idea in principle and let this go ahead and like what this is just going to do is just like it's it's a you know what i mean it's it's like waving a flag to try and attack the vulture phone trying to attract the vulture phones and the big property developers that this is a way that you can actually gorge yourself on profits like well well people are going to be living in these like crazy conditions where like you're like can you imagine like living in a in a place where you're sharing like your kitchen and your living room with 200 people like and you're going to go down to you know what i mean how do it even work like you know like like do you book a spot to like boil the kettle do you, you know like book book cooker time tell people what you're cooking in case like they don't like the smell or they're allergic to it or something like you know just like in, in practice how it would work but like i think like the absolute like profit gorging on this housing crisis and the proposals that they're coming up with and like Darrell o'brien just going to like he's flip-flop but now like the state looking at ways to like defend this idea i think it shows where their interests lie in terms of like they've cut the you know they're promising so many social housing but never actually delivering like for the last seven years um and like now that he's going to go to bat for developers here like i think mentioning Darrell o'brien is really important there because he ha- he always said that he was completely against co-living um and then recently he said he was gonna um initiate a report into it and it was going to be a really quick report but i mean to vote that down the other night um and you have to say it's either that he is supporting co-living and they're going to go with this or they just have a blanket ban on accepting and like the, it's really gotten to a stage where there has been stuff you look at the likes of the sock Dems, parental leave i remember was one that was considered you know because there was no money well not much money involved um the government took it and they made their own bill out of it and there's so rarely examples of when they actually will take a bill from an opposition party and create something from it themselves they just shut everything down and it's like an unwillingness to um put across the idea that the opposition have anything good to say um but yeah like those units you're talking about some of them are are as big as a disabled car parking space i mean that's and they're except and one of the defenses of it and some of the government minister government uh tds what they've been saying is is that multinational corporations might want to take this you know for the staff as if well those people are okay you know sure it's all you know it's only um it's only staff from multinationals that are going to live in them so you know they're they're going to be well paid and it's not like they'll be uh it, it'll be people in coming from homelessness that are going to end up in them when we know that's really what's going to happen it is going to be people on the lowest incomes that have no other choice to go anywhere else and they're going to pay through the nose for these tiny spaces for it um and it, yeah as well there was i just want to note as well there was a bill so there was the sock down, or there was the Sinn Féin um co-living bill and there was the sock down promotion to extend the six week uh, eviction ban to six months and that was voted down as well and i mean it's just this is really basic stuff that they should be agreeing to like six weeks brings us up to the start of christmas a landlord looking to evict someone now can wait six weeks you know six weeks isn't a big amount of time like um, i'm gonna go to diana because we're really we're nearly wrapping up i'm gonna go to diana and then dave but diana you have a story about the um working conditions for meat factories yeah this just really jumped out at me in the sunday business post again the headline is like um recruitment executive says meat factory workers are not paid enough and this is actually a guy from a a euro recruitment group who are the ones who hire all the workers in the meat factories so it's a bit like foxes complaining the chickens are too skinny you know because <laughs> these guys take a massive cut out of people's wages like out of their hourly wages um and as well as that 
they're getting workers from all over Europe and they're bringing them in um, into Ireland like and exploiting that and trying to use that to drive down wages um, by bringing in um, lower paid workers from other countries and then um, using that fact to, to keep wages down and stuff like that. Um, so like it's really incredible that they then come out and say, oh, the wages are too low. Really, the meat plant factory bosses should be paying these workers that we've deliberately exploited um, to pay them low wages. Um, but the meat factory workers should, owners should be paying them more, you know. Um, and it has a little bit of interest and detail in it in that it says that the company made, uh, had a revenue of 25 million last year and nearly all of that was in Ireland, mostly meat plant workers. Um, and they had a gross profit of 3.4 million and about 500 workers. So that's actually about six grand per worker in profit that they're making, you know? And then they're like, oh, they're not paid enough. <laughs> but like, it just, it's a, a problem um, right, right across the, the whole pandemic, you know, is this whole area of working conditions for people not having sick pay, not having decent working conditions. And it's just really um, jumps out from the meat factories as a, a huge issue, like people just being paid absolute poverty wages, not getting sick pay, still having to go um, into work. And the government just refusing to do anything about that. And again, they can act really quickly to, you know, seal the records um, of the Commission of Investigation for the Mother and Baby Homes. But they they have to like wait a year to do like um, a big report into whether people should get sick pay. Um, and there was also the question like that apparently they need legislation to close meat factories, but they haven't done anything to progress that either, you know, meat factories with outbreaks. So it's it's just that hypocrisy again and the drive for profit underlying all this, you know. Yeah, that that's it's pretty depressing, isn't it, Dave? Any good news for us to end on? <laughs> uh, no. Um but <laughs> okay. the uh just because it's it's related to what Diana was mentioning there, but um there's an article as well in the Sunday Business Post uh, the Irish gig economy app expects to sign up 30,000 users by January. Um, and it's like, it's the owner, John Ryan, of this app, Gigable, it's called. He's trying to reclaim the word from being a bad word, gig, gig economy. He thinks it should be a good word where people get control of their own destinies. And they'll have sick pay later on in the year. I believe it when I see it. But he, he basically is going through, you know, how his app is growing. And when you read towards the end of it, it says it's supported by Enterprise Ireland, the venture capital firm, Delta Partners, who I'm sure all have the best interests of their workers at heart. Um, but what, what, what I wanted to say about it was it's, it's about time the left came together to discuss some of this stuff, um, the gig economy, because that is a prime area that could be set up as a worker cooperative to set up their own act where the workers own it the workers can dictate what sick pay they get you know they you're cutting out the middleman these big uh, venture capital firms and it's, it's similar to what Beyonce tried with with her app I think it's called Tidal um, on, to take on Spotify and some of the others where the musicians themselves would have shares in whatever amount of listens they get and it, it, we need to have that sort of conversation um, to reclaim this space from the far from, not from the far right from the right uh, and from capitalist companies and there's another article there about Apple tax um, government consults legal advisors in response to a Apple tax appeal by European Commission not huge coverage on this but the European Commission have actually appealed the appealed decision on Apple tax so that's going to cost us more as we defend the right of Apple not to pay taxes in Ireland again um, and then there's a an article before I finish up uh, budget delivers Fianna Fáil a baby bounce of only one percent in latest poll and it's a, an article by Michael Brennan, who I have a lot of time for. I think he does some really good work. But when I read the opening part of this, it was really frustrating. In normal times, Fianna Fáil would be, have been expecting a budget bounce in the latest business post-Red Sea poll after an 
billion spending increase. And this is our, our opportunity here, Claire, I suppose, to plug what we did with Connor McCabe. Um, we recorded um, a patron-only event where Connor is doing a presentation uh, about how to analyze the budget. There wasn't 18 billion euros of extra spending. There was 5 billion euros, just under 5 billion euros of extra spending. And it's important that people on the left understand that the way the budget is portrayed in the media and the positivity around that has, um, I, I, I don't know, it, it's not as simple as there's 18 billion extra spending. And Connor will go through that. If people want to support us on uh, Patreon forward slash left block, um, they'll get this during the week. We'll upload this. Um, and it talks about actually an interesting part at the bottom of that article is about where the Fianna Fáil vote has gone. And it's saying 25% of the regular Fianna Fáil voters have gone to Fine Gael, 18% are undecided, and 13% are gone to Sinn Féin. Um, so it, it's, it's an interesting article, but it's, it's just a bit frustrating. And where I'm going to have two final quick articles very, very quickly. One is going to be a warning, but first, Jim, Jim O'Callaghan has a, 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 a comment piece here in the Business Post. We are asking too much of our younger generation in this fight. And it's about the fight about COVID and about how young people are expected to tackle the burden and all this, and we're stealing their youth. This is a guy who's in government. And it's, it's Fianna Fáil again playing both the opposition and the government. He's saying that we're, that we're asking too much of them, but we're the ones in government implementing these pieces of legislation. And I have to ask, where was Jim O'Callaghan when we rescued the banks and put $64 billion onto the backs of children who haven't been born yet because the last bond is going to be paid in 2054? Was he concerned about young people back then when we were doing that, when we were loading that sort of debt onto future generations? He didn't seem to give a shit. And the final article is a warning there in page six of the home um, news of um, the Irish Times. Pascal Donoghue warns of tough choices, saying borrowing cannot continue indefinitely. And he's talking uh, about the borrowing in, in taking on the, the COVID. Basically, it's saying austerity is on the way. And the warning to people who might be listening to this is to get yourselves organized in your political parties, in your trade unions, because they're, they're, they're being all nice and saying, we're all in this together, sort of, right now. But you can be sure he's talking about that we need to get back to a surplus. Already, we're not even through the pandemic. And he's saying we have to get back to a surplus as quickly as possible because we can't depend on the private markets who have the ability to pull the rug from under our feet as, as soon as they want. So if we're going to protect people's living standards in terms of conditions of employment and everything else, you need to get organised and organised quickly before this all happens. What a place to end. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Just want to say a huge thank you to... My co-host Dave Gibney, as always, and from our two guests from Rupture Radio podcast, uh, Diana O'Dwyer and Dave Morphy. You'll find their podcast wherever you get your podcasts and wherever you're listening to ours. Uh, see you next week. Thanks, bye. All right, Dermot here again. Thanks a million for listening. If you feel like supporting Rupture Radio, you can do so through the Patreon link in the episode description. Thanks a million, and see you later.